Ellen on politics. The workers' movement and the socialist movement has sort of broke into two branches, roughly. One statist, one anti-statist. in Europe, libertarian socialism is, is a way of expressing a, a desire for uh, a non-party socialism, an anarchistic socialism. Hello again and welcome to Al-Anon Politics. The music was, once again, Can't He performing Let's Work Together. The voices you heard over the music were first Noah Chomsky and second Ruth Kinna, each of whom is a prominent proponent of libertarian socialism, which is also called anarchist socialism, Noah in the United States and Ruth in Great Britain. Now, why do I call myself a libertarian socialist as opposed to, say, a democratic socialist, which uh, Bernie Sanders, the term Bernie Sanders uses, and a lot of other people now have picked up to express their position on politics and uh, the direction the co country should be going in? Well, the main reason is I think the term libertarian socialism better conveys where I actually stand. And I think that's not only because what the words mean in their historical context, but what they mean to people today. So I'm going to get into that a little bit. And then I'm going to follow by talking about some experiences in my own life that led me to have the views that I do. And finally end with my idea of what good strategy would be going forward. When Chomsky said that there was a split in the early socialist movement, he was talking about a split between anarchist socialists and democratic socialists. And the leading proponents of each view were, on the one, on the anarchist side, Mikhail Bakunin, this is toward the end of the 1800s, and on the other side for democratic socialism, it was Karl Marx, believe it or not. <laughs> he was a democratic socialist. Uh, and the, the main issue between them was one of strategy. Both sides wanted to get to a, some future socialist or communist society in which everybody would have all they need and you wouldn't need a government to coerce people to do things because people would be able to work together voluntarily and consensually. But the question was, how do we get from here to there? The democratic socialists, as I explained in my last episode, wanted to form workers' political parties, uh, contest in elections and gain office and then finally hold power in the government to start instituting reforms and then move toward a more socialist society. The anarchist socialism, socialists saw this as problematic because tr traditionally anarchism, which has a longer history than modern socialism, much longer, has seen the state itself as an institution created to keep a ruling class in power over the workers of a society. And Bakunin predicted that if uh, democratic socialists were successful in gaining government power, they would just institute a new ruling class composed of intellectuals and bureaucrats. Now, it looks pretty far-sighted when you see what happened in the Soviet Union, but this is 50 years before that. So he was talking about people who regarded themselves as democratic socialists, really wanted to use democratic politics, not uh, violent revolution, which is what people associate with the Russian Revolution. Most people were actually, though, somewhere in the middle. They leaned one way or the other, and that's true of me as well. I see some role for um, electoral politics in a strategy, but I also have concerns about that. 
and I share with anarchists the view that direct action is a good strategy, that you can take actions like demonstrations, strikes, um, and then going a little bit further, maybe further than I'm willing to go at the present, is takeover of factories and even the use of destruction of property or violence to institute a um, anarchist socialist uh, society. So I have some reservations about each side, but I see some value in each side. If, I, if I'm going to be in the middle like that, why don't I just call myself a socialist and have done with it? Don't use any adjectives to modify that. Well, the main reason is what that word means today. And to most people in the United States, in particular, it means big government and the restrictions of individual freedoms. They, they fear that what democratic socialists are trying to do, and conservatives have enthusiastically promoted this view, over a course of over a century is what they really want to do is use democratic politics to gain power and then institute something like Stalinist Russia, where you take away political rights and some people rule over others. A big government rules over everybody else, like George Orwell's 1984. Um, that's, a, uh, I, I think, a little far-fetched concern about democratic socialists. I think what Bernie is trying to do is use that modifier democratic to insist that these are also proponents of democratic rights and um, civil rights as well, pointing towards European societies rather than uh, communist societies to say, look, this is what happened in Europe. They were able to gain political power. They shared it with other parties. They had free elections. They were able to institute a lot of socialist measures, even to the point of nationalizing key industries in some countries. So they're, they're trying to point toward a different model, but I think that's often lost on Americans because they don't know much about Western European countries. They tend to think this is really a movement in the direction of something like the Soviet Union, whatever Bernie might say, or even whatever Bernie might think or hope. So I see that uh, the term democratic socialism is not quite adequate to convey what I would like to convey. Anarchism is also a problematic term uh, to people, well, it literally means no rulers, but to most people it means, well, if you don't have rulers, it means you just want chaos. Everybody does whatever they want, even at the expense of other people. So they associate it with disorder, chaos, violence, um, all that kind of bad stuff. This is not what anarchists, most anarchists have in mind. They, they really are looking for a society in which people can gradually learn how to work together harmoniously and cooperatively but they recognize that in the interim, there's going to be a need for government and reducing the size of government. Getting a little off track here. What I want to say is anarchism is not as good a term either. So I use the term libertarian socialism, which, as Ruth Kinna said in that opening segment, in Europe is synonymous with anarchist socialism. But to me, in the United States, it sounds different because it sounds closer to the libertarians that we're familiar with who want minimal government, not no government, and who also want to minimize coercion. And that's pretty much where I find myself. The big difference, of course, is that uh, libertarians in the United States are proponents of capitalism and libertarian socialists are not. This happened because libertarian socialism was, first of all, used for anarchism in France a long time ago, over 100 years ago because France had outlawed anarchists, so people who were proponents of anarchist socialism used a different term, libertarian, 
derived from liberty, free, free society, free individuals within society. This is what they're promoting. Um, it caught on and it was used for a long time, synonymous with anarchist socialism. But then in the United States, mid 20th century, proponents of fundamentalist free market uh, ideology, conservatives essentially picked up the term and stole it from the anarchists, used it for their own purposes. So I want to make that distinction. But what I do find useful about it is, number one, that it conveys minimal government, minimal coercion, not simply absence of government. And also because it causes some disharmony in people's thoughts. Well, how can you put those two things together? Um, libertarianism and socialism forces people to rethink what each of those terms really means. Libertarian socialism should be more associated with freedom and socialism should also be associated with freedom. So that's why I prefer the term libertarian socialism to either democratic socialism or anarchist socialism. I think it both forces people to think a little bit about what each of those terms means, has meant, should mean, and um, also pretty accurately conveys what I want, which is minimal government, minimal coercion, and a society in which people's needs are met and people have power over their own lives. So let me talk next about what experiences in my life led me to have this type of perspective. As free as the wind blows. That was a little bit of Connie Francis singing Born Free. Let me now give you a few stories from my own life that help lead me towards the political perspective that I now have, which is essentially libertarian socialism, or you could call it anarchist socialism. Go back to when I was about eight or nine years old, just a boy. Now, don't panic. I'm not going to go through every incident in my life, but there's an illustration here. In the 1950s, when I was around that age, there was not a lot of parental supervision. And our mother would typically say, uh, get away from the TV, go outside and find something to do. So we had to go outside and find something to do. And there were a lot of other kids in the neighborhood in the same boat. And what we would do is organize our own recreation. We would either play a game like baseball or make up our own games. But even when we had games like baseball that had their own rules, we would negotiate because you had to. Uh, kids would emerge as leaders helping to organize it, but you still had to hear each person's concerns because somebody might say, I don't want to be the outfielder. And you say, well, how about being the third baseman? Okay, that's all right. Otherwise, they quit and go away and you wouldn't have a team for a game. You could also change the rules if you needed to, to make it more fun. Like, okay, you, you got the best player, so give us five, uh, a score of five to begin with just to make the playing field even. Or you could say, well, give the little kid an extra turn at bat because, you know, he's not that good at it and he's getting upset. So you could change the rules. You could play however you wanted to play. And the point was to have fun, just to have something to do. And you learned a lot of skills about getting along with people and figuring out ways to do things and making it enjoyable and meaningful for everybody. But a little bit later, when my parents signed me up for Little League, it was a whole different experience. And I think the main difference here was that instead of organizing it ourselves, it was already organized and you had a coach that would tell everybody what to do. 
this is your position this is your position here's how the game is played you're supposed to do it this way not that way here's how you swing here's how you pitch you know and, and rather than learning yourself and taking responsibility for uh, having fun you had to do it their way and I think this was in part because parents adults in general wanted to teach you to accept authority and do things according to rules whether the rules made sense to you or not follow the rules because they were the rules so it was not as much fun as before and what it taught me although I didn't really articulate it to myself until later was that people are capable of organizing themselves to get things done in a way that's more satisfying than when they have somebody standing over them telling them what to do that has obvious implications not only for our political lives but for our economic lives jump ahead now to when I was a, in my t late teens. This was during the time of the Vietnam War, and I was subject to the draft. I didn't actually get drafted, but I came close. And what I realized through that was that the government could come in and rip you out of your home and send you away to fight in a war that you didn't believe in, that you didn't think made any sense, and that you know they're asking you to kill other people and risk your own life and safety for the sake of what? By the time I was near draft age and got called for my physical and all that, it was already in the early 1970s when it was well known that we were not winning the war. We did not have hope of winning the war. The politicians knew we didn't have the hope of winning the war. Why was it perpetuated? Why were they still drafting people? Essentially to save face for the president, for the top politicians. They couldn't just walk away and say, well, we, it didn't work out the way we hoped. They have to say that we, this loss, we lost in our, not we lost, but the war ended on our terms. We were able to get something at the negotiating table and we forced them to do that by using all this bombing and all these uh, very cruel methods like dropping name palm and the rest of it. What this indicated to me was that even when what the government is doing doesn't make sense in policy terms, they will still follow a path because they have the authority to do it and they want to make sure that people do what they say even if it is against their moral principles and doesn't make any sense to them so that sense that the government had that much power over my life and i had no say in it affected me deeply and gave me a, an abiding mistrust in the sense and rationality of the government this is especially so as uh, one of our presidents at the time, Lyndon Johnson, was actually a little bit before I was more politically aware, uh, but somewhat aware. He was known for doing good things like vo signing Voting Rights and Civil Rights Act and trying to e extend the war on poverty. Uh, but still, he took these actions that were totally against my principles. So not so trusting of political figures. I also got involved in the anti-war movement both in an electoral sense and in attending demonstrations. What I learned from that was the difference between empowering a candidate and empowering a movement. When I went to demonstrations, the feeling was that I was part of something larger that was helping to articulate my own views, my own voice. So I sent, it, it, it was an empowering feeling. It gave me more of an ability to express what I really believed Whereas when I did things like passing flyers for George McGovern for president, which was part of the same effort to try to end the war, 
I felt like I was empowering him. If he had won the election, he would go off and do what he thought best and not stop the consult with me or any of the other anti-war protesters. So it's the whole difference between handing power over to somebody who was going to go into the government and use it in the way they thought best and empowering yourself, empowering your own voice, your own message. That was quite a demonstration to me of the difference between movement politics and electoral politics. Move forward a little bit from there. Now I'm in graduate school. This is a little later in life than most people. I guess I was in my 40s already. And I got involved in our graduate teaching assistance union. Here I found out that instead of just attending protests, I was helping organize rallies. I was a speaker at rallies. I was part of the leadership team. We would debate strategy. I was part of the negotiating team with the administration. You had to learn how, how to negotiate effectively and come to a common position and decide how to, how to um, navigate the system, even engaged in uh, what you call unsanctioned work actions. Uh, you know, nonviolent di civil disobedience, I guess you would call it, because it really was illegal for public employees to engage in work stoppages, which we did on and off to try to make it safer for uh, students so there wouldn't be any repercussions. But I learned a lot of skills that would be useful in a society in which people actually governed themselves and needed less government intervention. Maybe a world even where you didn't need government in the sense that we know it today, where people could learn the skills of speaking clearly, um, confronting other points of views, negotiating, building consensus, all these types of things were very, that was my most important political education in my life. And I've been involved in a lot of different types of political activity, uh, electoral politics, and you know, trying to write letters to your congressman and being part of organizations, all these things. That was my biggest influence. And it taught me how it's important um, to be engaged in political activity. And I think electoral politics can do that as well, especially grass movement campaigns, like for initiative campaigns, or more unusually in uh, candidate campaigns, when Bernie Sanders' team decided to allow some of his supporters in different states to organize their own uh, campaign activities. That was a big thing because those people got involved and learned a lot of new skills, whereas in campaigns where you simply follow the directives of paid professionals or the candidate has the final word on everything, you don't learn those same skills. So this is why I favor grassroots initiatives and actions like that, and reasons why I've come to distrust the government and believe in direct action. All these things are helping prepare you for a life in which we can minimize government, minimize coercion, and learn the skills we need to organize societies as equal citizens. Okay, so where would I go from here? Uh, what would I do uh, with any electoral, what's the electoral strategy? What's the movement strategy? That's where I want to go next. Okay. In this last part, I want to talk in general terms about a strategy for libertarian socialists. And I emphasize a strategy. This is my view of it, and I do welcome your feedback on it. I think it incorporates three aspects. 
I'm going to run through those briefly and then expand upon them each a little more as I continue my comments. First of all, I think each of us needs to strive to become a better human being at all times. Bet you weren't expecting that one. I'll talk about why in a little bit. Number two, and this is more familiar to anarchist and libertarian socialists, is supporting alternative institutions and movements that empower ordinary people and show them that they can have more of a voice and more control over their lives. Also to work within these in a way that demonstrates the ability to work together consensually and cooperatively. And then finally, and this is less familiar and maybe more controversial to uh, libertarian socialists in general, is an electoral strategy. One in which you're not trying to take over the state in order to exercise power, but you're trying to work within the state to reduce its coercive aspects and promote its more consensual aspects, however embryonic and weak those may be, without having some role within the state, you're constantly subject to being oppressed and repressed by the state. All right, let's go through those a little bit more fully. First one, striving to become a better human being. Now, the biggest obstacle to anarchist or libertarian socialist, where you're trying to get people to believe in a world where, where human beings can work together cooperatively and in peace without structures of domination backed up by the uh, use of force or coercion, coercion, violence, really, threat of violence. People don't believe that's real. They may think, yes, there are some people, people like me, who will work in a productive way without having to be forced to do it, who will uh, treat other people respectfully, who won't hurt other people or steal from them. Uh, they, they believe some people are capable of that, but there's always those other people we need the state to protect us from. And whether those people are defined by skin color or uh, cultural background or language or whatever, it also includes, and most especially includes, socialists and anarchists. Because the thing that the state wants to do, the defenders of our current state based on coercion want to do is convince people they need the state to protect them from these other kind of people. And every time they are able to present socialists, anarchists, Marxists as people who are threatening that people that act out of anger and resentment more than rationality or compassion for others, they are demonstrating, they are reinforcing the belief that you can't trust other people and you need state violence. All right, so demonstrating in your own actions that somebody who professes your beliefs really cares about other people, is capable of having respectful discussion and dialogue with them, and who um, actually demonstrates the ability to work cooperatively and consensually with others is important. It increases the trust of people in other people, especially those they may fear or not understand. All right, so that's important becoming a better person and demonstrating that to the best of your ability. That's always a growth process. Number two, and this one kind of speaks for itself. We have to build up institutions that make people feel they can have control over their own lives. And that means supporting things like labor unions and especially more uh, democracy within labor unions to make the, the bureaucracy and leadership more responsive to the rank and file. Uh, 
cooperatives, whether they're worker cooperatives, consumer cooperatives, housing cooperatives, uh, educational and um, literature kind of distribution to, um, to take control of uh, presentation of ideas, and uh, what else? Um, mutual aid associations, all these types of things are important. Movements like uh, political movements that are trying to express particular views that people share. All these things make people for, feel more empowered. And insofar as they work on consensual principles where people are not you know, forced to follow the lead of others, but choose their own leaders and uh, have a input into decisions made and can consensually withdraw if they disagree with the movement, all these things are important to demonstrating people can work together and making people feel this is possible and I can have a voice and I deserve to have a voice. Now, finally, and most controversially for anarchist socialists and libertarian socialists is the idea that we should work within the political institutions, electoral politics. And that's because the sense has been that the state is an instrument of violence and anyone seeking uh, roles within the state are going to inevitably be compromised by it and perpetuate those systems of violence. Now, I would say look at the recent history of the modern state, and of course you see a lot of violence, a lot of repression, but you also see in embryonic form continually striving to gain more hold over it is these consensual processes, these, these processes that try to empower people and give them rights against the state. I'm thinking of here of rights like your freedom of speech, freedom of press, right to assemble, and also things like uh, democratic rights, your right to vote in elections, your right to run for office, your right to create political parties. Of course, all these things are compromised and they're watered down and their uh, obstacles are placed in their way. But if you try to imagine a society based on cooperation and consensus without the use of violence and coercion, it's going to have to have something like processes where people come together to discuss, have input on decisions, choose people to carry out decisions, hold positions of responsibility that they can hold them accountable for, something like a governing process. And we have some of those things within our governance, uh, governing institutions already. So the political strategy then would be to not number one in priority, but of course, reduce the coercive aspects of the state. I'm thinking particularly of military and police. And you can only do that when people trust that those are not as necessary as they think. So the opposite side of it, and the more important side to focus on, is building up the consensual aspects of our governing institutions. That is, policies that decentralize power, bring them down to the level of the individual, the um, private institutions, disregarding the kind of capitalist businesses we have right now for the moment, um, uh, local governance, uh, local governments, all these things, decentralizing, to some extent decommodifying. I think universal basic income makes people more free in their life to withdraw from the labor market if necessary, so their relations in the uh, employment and working within organizations become much more voluntary and consensual. Um, uh, legalization of labor unions, all these things that empower people, make it more consensual. One I'm forgetting uh, was making it more democratic, right? Making alternative parties and candidates have a better chance of getting their message out, um, standing for something different and educating the public about these things. Okay, so those are the three things. 
three aspects to a strategy for libertarian socialism that I would emphasize, striving to become better people in order to promote trust between each other, uh, engaging in alternative institution building in ways that demonstrate the ability of people to work together cooperatively, and finally, engaging in the state in ways that reduce its coercive aspects and uphold and uh, expand its consensual and uh, voluntary aspects, empowering aspects. All right, uh, not everybody can do all those things, so you need to choose the area where your, your talents and abilities are best directed. Each person makes that decision on them for themselves, and I think that's because the only w way you can actually believe in an, uh, in an anarchist government is by believing that everybody has some ability to discern the proper role in society. All right, thanks. You can leave comments on Facebook and YouTube for Alan on Politics, and I hope to see you again next week. Bye.